Amen, amen, amen. Good morning. How are we doing? It's good to see you all today. We had a lot of people gone for the holiday. We have some visitors with us, so it's good to have you here. Today is the last of the Ten Commandments. Next week, I'm really excited about that series and a little uh, fearful of it, too. It's about questions many of you submitted this past summer. And next Sunday is the question about God's existence. And I'm not smart enough to handle that, so we've asked Rich Knopp, a professor of philosophy and theology over at Lincoln Christian Seminary, uh, university to come and speak about that. Rich actually specializes in questions like that. So you won't want to miss it. And then the rest of the series is listed in your bulletin, and it should be a lot of fun. Okay, Ten Commandments. Let's review them. You shall not have any other gods before me. I, I did that wrong. You shall have no other gods. Number two, you shall not make any graven images. Number three, you shall not take his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath one day a week for worship and rest. Number five, honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Don't lie. Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, don't raise your hand on this, but I want to ask, do you buy lottery tickets? You know, the last one, I think, was second largest in history, over $700 million. And there's articles with this title, several articles, actually, that ask, do you really want to win the lottery? Money is nice, but plenty of lottery winners, uh, it has not turned out well. All that money sometimes leads to misery, pain, and even death. Most jackpot winners end off worse off than they started. Nearly 70% are financially ruined within seven years of winning. And a troubling number of winners end up dead. Like David Lee Edwards, he and his wife enjoyed the money for a while. They spent a lot, splurged a lot, but it caused marital problems. They eventually divorced. He started using drugs heavily, got into some legal trouble, and he died at age 58 while in hospice. Abraham Shakespeare won $30 million in 2006, only to be swindled by a woman who convinced him she was protecting him from all the vultures in his life. Shakespeare went missing in 2009, just a few months after he had been convinced to transfer all his wealth to that woman. In 2012, she was sentenced to life in jail for Shakespeare's murder. It tells of kidnappings, death threats, constant harassment by family and strangers, divorce, addictions. See, when you win the lottery, in this article it said you can, you, you can buy all you want, and most people don't really change who they are. They just expand on who they are, expand on their present lifestyle. So if they buy booze, well, now they can buy all the booze they want. You know, same with food, cigarettes, whatever, and it ends up destroying them. So why do people buy lottery tickets? It is one of the stupidest things you can do. I hope I didn't offend anyone. But why would you buy something that will destroy your life? Now, I hear some of you say, but I could pay off the church debt. Give me a break. Keep it. That's not why you're buying lottery tickets, all right? There's a variety of reasons for buying a lottery ticket, but the main reason, I think, is addressing this 10th commandment. We covet. We want what we don't have. And we think that having more will make life better. Another word for covet is desire. King David desired, he coveted his neighbor's wife, stole her, lied, eventually committed murder, dishonoring God's name, committed adultery, of course. And in that one instance, David broke at least seven of the Ten Commandments, but it started with the tenth, desire. The first commandment is no other gods. 
That should be the motivation and foundation for all the other commandments. Don't let work be your God. Don't let money be your God. Don't let sex be your God. Don't let possessions be your God. The first commandment is the most important. Let God be God. Love Him with all your heart and soul and mind. The last commandment then explains why, I believe, we disobey the first one. We desire the wrong things or we have out-of-control desires. Desire is not sin. Desires are natural. The word covet desire is a neutral word. We have a desire for food, desire for love, desire for physical safety, very natural good desires that God puts into us. There are healthy desires that motivate us and give us ambition. In fact, to a certain extent, if you think about it, you will become what you desire or what you love. You are what you love. Our hearts were intended to desire to love God. And that's how we were created. But sin comes in so we uh, desire a substitute for God. And so it's my desire for happiness that becomes God. Well, that's not a bad desire, but it'll lead you down the wrong path. My desire for success, it's not a bad desire, but if that overrides your desire for God, you'll, you'll be sorry for that. To be human is to have desires, the things that you love. You cannot not desire but there's wrong desires, there, there's wrong loves, there's desires that can control us, and that is what covetousness is about. Related to covetousness is resentment. We resent what we have not been given. We resent that someone else got more. We resent that life has been unfair. Your friend has a seemingly perfectly married, perfect marriage, perfect house, perfect kids, and it's easy to envy that or resent that, which, by the way, that's all a lie. Your friends don't have any of that. James 4 says, what causes fightings and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Notice who's at fault when you fight. It's your desires, your wants that battle within you. You resent that God has blessed someone else more than you. Now, resentment and covetousness does a lot of damage, obviously, but I'm going to give you a few here. One is that it puts distance between us and people. It's hard to be a friend to someone you're jealous of or someone you resent or if you're competing to get ahead. You'll often see, you know, on commercials, be the envy of the neighborhood or be the envy of your friends, and the appeal there is to make others covet what you have. It's a pride thing. One guy said, how can I get out of debt if my neighbor keeps buying things that I can't afford? You know, our debt crisis, our spending crisis, I, it's because we've broken this 10th commandment. There's another guy, his wife has tons of credit cards, and, and, he, and he says, she has so many magnetic strips in her wallet that her purse points north. <laughs> All because of this desire to keep up with others, to have what others have, and because we covet, it puts a, desire, a, a, a barrier between us and others, and jealousy ruins relationships. We all know that. Second thing, and worse, coveting puts distance between us and God. Coveting is ultimately worshiping something other than God, something that we desire more than God. In Colossians 3, Paul calls the covetous person an idolater because it places a substitute for God in our hearts. I have a family member, and it's not my wife, okay? I'm convinced it's addicted to shopping. Spending has become a religion. It gives this family member, meaning and identity, makes them feel better about themselves, helps them overcome depression, brings joy, a sense of power and fulfillment. All the things that we should be looking to God through Jesus for, people can look for in things. Consumerism really is a religion, especially in our culture. 
And consumerism starts, it's not just the material things, it starts entering into our relationships and we start saying, okay, can you feed my desires? Can you do what I want? And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are far from God. When the wrong desires rule our lives, God, God doesn't. So it puts a barrier between us and Him. Third, coveting puts a distance between us and ourselves because there's an inner turmoil when we covet and, and unsettledness within. See, if you covet things that you cannot always get, it'll each up. It's like acid at the soul. You, you get bitter. You get mad at God. You even despise yourself. James, is, it's those desires within us. It's within you that is the problem. It's not the other guy's fault that he has more than you. It's not God's fault that you don't have more. It's what's in you. You know what I covet, by the way. What I envy, I, I think about this last week. I don't care if you drive a nicer car than me. Big deal. I don't care if you have a better income. I don't care if you have more money. I could care less than that. I don't care if you have a better bicycle than I do. But what really bothers me is when someone's a better preacher than me. It just can eat me up because I oh, wish I could do that. What do you covet? It's at the heart of many problems. It could be argued that desire is at the heart of breaking every one of these Ten Commandments. Bigger question is, what is the cure for this coveting disease and selfish wanting? This commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house, your wife, or servant, ox, and donkey. In other words, don't covet anything of your neighbors. Don't covet the job, the car, their good looks, or their preaching ability. So how can I do that? Well, in one word, I'd say the cure is contentment. Be at peace with who you are and what you have. And it's tough. Because everything in this world is that you got to compete, you got to get ahead. But that's why you have the Holy Spirit in you to, to, to help you with this one. And that's why you need worshiping regularly because it's a reminder every week. And, and fellowship with other believers regularly and in the Word and growing your relationship to Jesus. And it will help grow the contentment in you. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, we're given a formula. It says godliness plus contentment is great gain. Godliness plus contentment. And then it says if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Godliness plus discontentment was, a lot, was what a lot of Christians are trying to do, and it doesn't work. Your world will be so much better off even just, I'm content and godly. I go and visit a woman in the nursing home who just lost her husband. She's not well. She'll probably never get out, and she says, I've just decided to be content. I'll love and serve God where I'm at. She's probably better off than many of us. MonicaandDavid.com. You can look it up. Story of a young couple. Both have Down syndrome. They get married. And this is a curiosity to some. So the, someone interviews the woman. Her name is Monica. She'd recently married David. They both have Down syndrome. The interviewer asks questions like, Are you happy? How do you pay your bills? Since you don't drive, how do you get to work? They would never produce children because they agreed to be sterilized before the wedding. They lack the intellectual capacity to dive into conversation about politics, religion, and global warming. And the great American dream of home ownership is far beyond their reach. How could they possibly be happy or satisfied? And the woman paused for a moment after all these barrage of inquiries about her happiness and how they got along. And she looked the interviewer in the eyes and said, slowly and confidently, I am happy because I always get what I want. And the interviewer is just not expecting that. So he goes back over the litany of things that this woman and this disabled spouse would never be able to do. And the young woman repeated her point, said, I always get what I wanted. And then she added, but I know what to want. 
And she explained that her happiness was rooted in realistic expectations for her life. She did not believe she'd become the next Nobel laureate or even a highly skilled white-collar worker. On the contrary, she'd settled into her place on the planet rather well and just able to live in contentment because she said, I know what to want. That is the question. Can you say you know what to want? What are the right things to want, the right desire? Adam and Eve had everything, everything in the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't enough. The very first sin was not murder, lust, or lying, or stealing. It was discontent, coveting. They wanted what God had. They wanted to be like God, didn't have enough. They didn't know what to want. You want a new house? You have to get it. So you get it. You think you'll be happy? I know a lot of people in new houses that are not that happy. You have old furniture. It's not good enough, so we set sights on new furniture. You have to get it. You get it, and you think you'll be happy. I see people, new furniture. They're not all that happy. I knew a lady who won the lottery. She came to our church. She was very faithful. Before the lottery, she was, as far as I could tell, she was content. She had to sell Avon to make ends meet. She was not rich at all. After the lottery, she changed, became fearful, suspicious, and just crabby, and it ruined her family. Got to go on vacation. Now, vacations are fine, but I know people go on vacations a lot, still not too happy. The propaganda is all around us. Tell, you need the new and improved. You need 15% more, and, and you, you got to covet. You got to want more. They... People, this culture wants you to be discontent. So you're fighting a massive you know, deluge of messages. But the good news, we can learn contentment. We do not have to have out-of-control desires. We don't have to give in to our surroundings. Paul said, I have learned how to live in plenty, and I have learned how to live with little. And I think living with plenty is harder. Paul said, I know what to want. So how do we learn contentment? Number one, develop the ability to say two words. The first one is enough. Kierkegaard said it is more blessed to be able to do without than to have to have. It is better to realize I have enough. Our church members that go to Uganda or Haiti or Guatemala, everything I hear when they first go, that their first trip over, uh, when they come back, it is a shock of how happy these children are. How can you be so happy? You don't have anything. You'll never have joy until you can say, I have enough. It's tough. I know. I struggle with this. I did something when I first came to Mount Pulaski, and if you were, you've been here eight years or longer, you might remember this, and I just wanted it to be a reminder when people left. thought about doing it this morning. I, eh, no, I didn't want to do it again. But anyway, I had available for everyone a little square card with four letters on it, N-U-F. F, and I told everyone to pick one up. I, maybe some of you remember this. And I said, now you have enough. You may not have everything, but you have enough. You may not have a great income, but you have enough. You may not have a great house, but you have enough. And you might just write those four letters on a card, carry it in your pocket or purse. Next time you're tempted to envy or maybe buy something that you really don't need, just pull it out and say, I have enough. Your kids ask for the 80th time for a new pair of shoes, give them enough. Here, you got enough. It's a magic word because it's true. You do have enough. You have more than anyone in Uganda or Haiti, a lot more. And then the other word is no. And it's related to enough, of course. This is one of the best gifts you can give yourself, and it's a present you can give to your children. Do your children a favor and disappoint them. 
And some of the kids are thinking, my parents do really well at that, you know. But get them ready for life and help them realize that life can be better with less. Kids, your parents love you, so they're going to say no. I saw a report about the factors that have turned even the youngest children into consumers, and it talked about little two-year-olds who could recognize brand names. I mean, just very, very young age. It's just all around us. And the report says, studies of adults who were overindulged as children paint a dismal picture of their future. It told about how kids become adults and find it impossible to live within their means. You know anyone like that? I mean, this is epidemic. Just look at the credit card debt. Average 8000 And the article says it's hard to be happy with what they have. They're not content. You have to learn it. And you're not going to learn it from from the culture. Two words, enough and no. Make them a part of your life and you will be blessed. Here's the second thing. Stop comparing. This is a curse. I think this is more of a young young people thing. Uh, When I was a minister in Modesto, just, uh, you know, late 20s or whatever, I was making $225 a week. And the Palmyra Church, three miles down the road, that preacher was making $240 a week, $15 more than I was, and I was envious. I'm embarrassed to even say it. Now, if Palmyra paid $215, and I was making $225, I'd be okay with that. I'd be content. You see how it works? When we compare, we always compare up. There's someone always better off than you, and it is a curse to be in this comparison mode, and you'll be miserable until you can get over this. Uh, there was one family in, back in my week when I was preaching there. They were rich. They lived in a mansion. And, and the lady was talking to me one day, and it just floored me. I couldn't believe she was even saying this. Uh, she was complaining because there was, well, Mark, did you know there's another couple in town? And she gave the name. They're richer than we are. So being the second richest family in town is not good enough? Really? Lady, you got enough. Stop it. Stop complaining. Stop comparing. There's a story about the Greek king Tantalus And he stole from the gods, and his punishment for stealing from the gods was he was condemned to an eternal torment of hunger and wanting. So if he wanted to get an apple off the apple tree, the tree would lift its branches so he couldn't couldn't quite reach it. And if he wanted a pear off the pear tree, he'd reach for it and would lift its branches so he couldn't get it. And he could never get what he was hungry for or what he desired. And from that myth, we get the word tantalizing. When you covet, the expectations keep getting raised higher and higher because you're going to get that new car and that lasts about five minutes, the joy of that. And so you've got to get something else and something else. And you keep reaching. You'll never reach it, especially if you keep comparing because there's always going to be someone better off than you. There's always going to be a better preacher than me. Number three, recognize that everything we have is a gift This is the positive side. Be thankful. Realize that nothing I have is deserved. Dave Ramsey on his radio show. That's our favorite show. People call in. How are you doing today, Dave? And what's he say? Anyone know? Better than I deserve. You listen to Dave Ramsey. So I think we should all say that. Let's do that. I'm going to say, how are you doing? You say, better than I deserve. Okay? How are you doing today? (laughs) Very good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Every night in bed, the last thing I do... And I got this idea from, from a book, and I've been doing it for a couple of years now. Every night when I'm laying there in bed before I go to sleep, in fact, I'm not sure I can even go to sleep without doing this now. It's such a habit. I, list, I go through the past day, I review the day, and I come up with three things to be thankful for. And most nights it's pretty easy. In fact, most nights come up with a lot more. There's some nights it's a little tougher. But if you think that what you have is deserved or earned, you're going to have a hard time with contentment. 
you're getting better than you deserve. What do we all deserve? Not good. See, we today call this the entitlement generation. I feel sorry for them. They'll never be content. If, you, if I think I deserve a good marriage, the one I have will likely not measure up. But if I think my spouse is a gift from God, I will rejoice in him or her. If I think I deserve a great car, I'll never be happy with the one I have. But if I think the car I have is a gift from God, I will rejoice in it. Same with your job, your income, anything. Just a whole different mindset. You can learn contentment. I have to teach myself everything I have is by grace, everything. My next breath is a gift. And along with a thankful heart goes a generous heart. Contentment with what you have and generosity, our brother and sister, they go together. A giving heart is an antidote to selfishness. Now, people will, you know, no, no one wants to say, yeah, I'm selfish. No, I'm not selfish. But then if they don't give, they really are. Because actions speak louder than words. I don't care how we spin it. You know, actions do say whether we are generous or not. The easiest person to deceive is myself. It is a fact that generous people are more content. Research shows it over and over. They have more joy. They're just better off. They have, they're happier. And I'm not talking about just giving financially. I'm talking about giving of our time, giving encouragement to others, giving help, just helping others. See, constant self-indulgence is what makes us sick. That's why when people retire, I was talking to a guy the other day. He's retired three times. You have to have a purpose. And a lot of times when people retire, that's when they become really good at giving of their time and effort. But there's one more to help us learn contentment. This is the most important. Find your significance in God, not things. Your significance. You are loved by God. The Apostle Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Live for something higher. The first commandment says, love God. You know, really live for Him. Don't just attend church. Don't just pray. Really get into God. The more you know about Him, you'll find this is an amazing, an amazing being. So often we hear phrases like, Jesus will meet your every need, and we hear that in church, and it is a true statement, all I need is in Him, but I think we have a perverted view of needs. In the third world country, food, clothing, and housing are very real needs, not here. As far as I know, everyone, you're eating pretty well, and you've got a home to live in, you're wearing clothes. See, a consumer culture is not about fulfillment of real needs, it's about creation of needs. So when I say, I need this, don't trust yourself. Probably don't. Not in consumer culture. You can't trust yourself because we've been brainwashed about what we need. Yeah, I need a satisfying career. I need an enjoyable love life. I need good health and adorable kids. That's all stuff that's pretty secondary in the Bible, if it's in there at all. What do you really need? Do you know what to want? So instead of talking about needs, you know, in the church, and the church meeting people's needs, we should say, Jesus will meet your every, instead of saying that, we should say, Jesus will rearrange your needs. That's where we really get the help. He will help you understand what your real needs are, and they aren't what you think they are. Sometimes we churches, hey, we're here to meet your needs, and essentially, we're here to help you be selfish. We're help you, here to help you be a consumer. We're here to give you what you want. No, that's not what we're here for. Churches should say, we're here to help you to rearrange some of your thinking. Because that's what God wants to do. Rearrange your thinking to be in line with His will. And get beyond consuming and coveting. So you can have a truly abundant life that Jesus... A truly uh, uh, content life. So He will show us, 
I really don't need a new spouse. I really don't need a new house. What I really need is a changed heart and a changed mind. Truthful lives lived with grace. That's what we really need. Now, you already have a verse memorized on contentment. I think everyone here probably knows this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have enough. Now, desires are good. The key is not to get rid of desires, but to redirect them and desire the right things and the right person. Desire the things above. So, in this commandment, God's desire for us is, I want you to be content. I want you to be thankful for what I've given you. I want you to realize that you've been given an abundance of blessings. I want you to desire the right things, the things that are above, not the things below. And I want you to desire me above all. I want you to find your joy in me, not in what you don't have. I want you to realize you've already won the lottery. Your father has untold wealth, and he's going to give you all you need. And then your inheritance is going to be out of this world. So be content and be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, um, we got to go against the grain on this to learn contentment. And I pray you'll help each one of us find satisfaction and a thankful heart and a grateful spirit. And help us to see what we have is so much and stop comparing. Really, we are too weak to keep these commandments. We are fallen. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us and to instruct us and lead us and motivate us and empower us. I pray that we will empty our lives of those things that would quench his presence in ours. You are our God, not possessions. You are our hope, not a new house. You are our joy. And may we rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.